me ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Help us to see what you would want us to see from this section. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Job chapter 8. We're going to have Bildad start speaking. Uh, Job has spoken for the last two chapters, basically saying, I'm, I'm ready to die. I'm, I'm tired of all of this pain and suffering. I'm, I'm ready to die. And not only is he tired of it, he says, I don't deserve it. So this is Bildad getting ready now to speak to him of this. And it's kind of interesting, For just out of curiosity's sake, I looked up what does Bildad mean, and it means confused or confusing love. So it's kind of an interesting name, confused or confusing love. So it's got a very strange name uh, as he's speaking here. All right, so starting at verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, how long will you speak these things, and how long shall the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God pervert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your children have sinned against him, and he has cast them away for their transgression, if you would seek unto God betimes and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and make the habitation of your righteousness prosperous. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end should greatly increase. For inquire, I pray of you, I pray you the former age, and prepare yourself to search for their fathers. For we are but yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach you and tell you and utter words out of their heart? So we're going to stop here for just a moment, because there's a lot just in this section right here. So Bildad starts speaking, and he starts reprimanding Job for his statements of, I'd like, I'm ready to die, I'm tired of this, I don't deserve it. And his first statement is, how long will you speak these things? All right? He's reprimanding Job, who's in so much pain, he just wants to have it done with. And he's been saying over and over again that I have not done anything to deserve what has come my way, and Bildad's saying, you know, you know, you're a foolish person. Kind of like what most people would say to anybody who's complaining about the judgment of God. He doesn't understand that this isn't God's judgment, but that is his preference of, of his belief. And this is something that we have to be very careful about. What do we believe? I've, been, I've talked with people many times and then going, well, I think this is true and this is true and this is true, therefore this, 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 and this. And I'm going, well, I agree completely with you for all your therefores, except I disagree with you for your beginning statements. Your beginning statements weren't true, so therefore your conclusions were not correct. Bildad's conclusion is God will always bring judgment upon anybody who is bad. Yes, that is true. His preface is that, Job, you have been bad, which is not true. So his conclusion would be true if Job had been bad and deserved it. His conclusion in his statements would be a good argument. But because he is starting from a wrong foundation, his argument does not hold up. All right? And this is part of the problem we have in the book of Job is these guys make good arguments if their preface was true. But because their preface is true, their arguments fall apart. All right, And so this is where we're at on his argument. 
Well, what it basically means is if what they start with is true, yeah. then their argument is, is good. Right, but their argument is good, but it's not good because they didn't start out. Correct. They didn't start out the right way, so therefore the argument, the way it's used, is incorrect. If Job had been bad, then everything Bildad would have said would be true. Job, you should not be complaining because you are getting what you deserve. And, he's, and this is what this whole chapter is all about. But because his preface is wrong, Job has not been bad, he cannot be criticizing Job because his preface is wrong. So for her, for whatever reason, that's part of God's judgment? Maybe. Remember, I've said this several times. If we're going through hard times, the first thing we do is look at our life and say, am I being reprimanded for something that I have done? Because yes, God does that. Bildad's complaint is correct. You know, if you do something wrong, God allows judgment to come your way. If I can't find something without going into deep destruction of my life, you know, I'm going, okay, well, I don't think I've done anything bad enough to deserve this. Then the question is, what is God trying to teach us? These guys never go back to this, what is God trying to teach you? They only have one idea. If you do right, God blesses. If you do wrong, God curses. Plain and simple, that is their logic. They do not understand the idea that God can also bring teaching into your life. Remember, we have the advantage. We know what went on in heaven. Lucifer comes to God and says, hey, you know, Job would not worship you if you took away all the blessings. He's only, he's only worshiping you because of all the blessings. And God says, okay, you can, you know, take away his possessions, take away his health. And we know this from reading the first couple chapters. Job does not have this information about, about what's going on. All he knows is he agrees with them. God, you do what's right, God blesses. You do what's wrong, God curses. And there's no, no other option in his mind. But because their foundation is wrong in their, in their thought process, he's never going, Job himself is never going to get to this idea that God's trying to teach me that God is God. Bildad never, and, and neither, none of the other ones <laughs> ever get to that conclusion because they're still focused on only this binary you know, idea that you follow God and you're blessed. If you don't follow God, you are cursed. All right, so this is the problem that they're dealing with. Well, because we understand Job, we now know that there's a third class out there that God can be trying to teach us something. It's not just judgment. It can be learning. And we know this, you know, if we ask for God to help you learn to love people, that, you know, the very thing he's going to do to you to help you lo learn to love people is put somebody that's very unlovable in your path. And if we didn't know that he was trying to teach us, we're going, okay, what did I do to deserve this? You know, God, how, how could I have been so bad that I deserve this? No, there's the third option. That there's a set, another option out there that God says, I'm teaching you through this hardship. This is what the book of Job is about, that there is another option out there. So even though what Bildad says is true in this context, it's not. In this context, it's not. Yes, if, if Job had done something bad and was denying that he was doing it, then yes, he's a hypocrite and all the stuff that Bildad... Bildad's argument is, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. Well, in chapter 3, And be, which his, true, his statements are true. And his attack is against, and we'll get there, his attack is against Job's defense that he didn't deserve what's going on. 
So yes, this is the whole process that's involved here. There's a third option that people aren't, in this day, aren't considering, and those who believe in the prosperity gospel do not consider. You're either being blessed, being judged, or, or God's trying to teach you something. Technically a second option, because the two are tied together. Uh, but there's, this is where he is at. So he's going, how long are you going to speak these things? How long are the words of your mouth going to be like a strong wind? A wind that blows around and doesn't mean anything, doesn't do anything good. All right. So he's, he's criticizing Job's position. And then we get to this question, does God pervert or twist judgment? And does the Almighty pervert judge justice? In other words, he's saying, Job, you're saying you don't deserve this. He goes, you're now accusing God of doing something that is not right. And what he's doing, and Bildad's actually doing the same thing. He's accusing God of not doing something right because he does not understand what's going on. He has this idea that if you do good, you're blessed. If you do wrong, you're cursed. You know, black and white. You know, and so he's looking at Job and saying, Job, you keep saying that you haven't done anything wrong. Now you're accusing God of doing something, of perverting justice and judgment. And you know, this is something we need to be very careful about because we can get into the same idea that somebody, this person really deserves what's going on. I don't know what they did, but they must really deserve this. And we're not looking at what it is that God's trying to teach them. All right. And this is what is important for us. God does what he does for his reasons. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. So what he does, we may not even understand. And like I say, this is why our first step is, look at my life. You know, have I been sinning? Maybe a secret sin nobody knows, and now I'm, now I'm being judged for it? Repent and endure your judgment. And I look back and go, you know, God, I can't really see anything that I haven't confessed or anything that's this bad. What are you trying to teach me? What do I need to learn? That's not what these guys, and Job has the same problem. Again, I've said this before. Job believes what these guys say. His problem is that he believes in the prosperity gospel. And so he's struggling himself with this whole idea of, you know, I'm, God's taken away everything from me. I'm in great suffering. What have I done that deserves this much pain? <laughs> And this is when he's coming in and saying, okay, God, you know, he started out right. I'm, you know, God can do what he wants. He's, he's sovereign. You know, shall we accept good for, you know, from uh, God and not evil, which he told, told his wife. Uh, he, he understands on one side that, yes, God can do what he wants to do, but yet he's struggling with it goes against his theology. And God will oftentimes teach us if our theology isn't complete, God will come in and do things to help shake up our theology and teach us how to think correctly. And so this is what's going on here. God is going to use this to help Job learn correct thoughts about God. Then he goes on, and this is where it kind of gets very interesting. Verse 4 says, If your children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their dis transgression. What is he saying? Job, your children deserve this. <laughs> what what great comfort this is. <laughs> you know, Job, your children were so bad and you didn't know what it was and God took them, took them because of their, their sin. Now, how would you think that this was the comfort they were giving you? <laughs> now, now, it might have been true statement. It might have been a true statement. We don't know anything about his kids. 
but this is not the way you comfort somebody. All right? You don't come in and say, well, they deserved what they got, so just suck it up and you know, uh, get over it. All right? you know, this is why he's going to come back later on and say, you guys are terrible comforters. All right? You guys, you know, whether, they, whether what you said is true or not, you guys are terrible comforters. And believe me, it can be easy to say something that is not comforting to somebody that may have comforted you, and I don't know how this could be in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, you all know my favorite verse is Romans 8.28. I learned the hard way not to quote that verse to somebody who's going through a hard time because they just about took my head off, you know, because it was not comforting to them because they did not believe the verse coming into the trial. So to give them the verse in the middle of the trial did not comfort them. For me, all I need to be reminded of Romans 8.28. God did not take Romans 8.28 out of the Bible as um, many people have been reminded of in the, in, the, in the past. You know, and it's, oh yes, God's got a plan. All right, thank you. But if you don't believe it going into the problem, it is not a comfort in the middle of the problem. All you're going is, God, how can you be so mean and nasty to me with, you know, in the middle of my uh, hardship, and then you're going to tell me it's going to be for good? You know, and you've got to be able to understand that. So they're going, well, <laughs> Job, your children deserved it. You know, not very comforting. Then verse 5 says, if you would seek God before times... <laughs> And make your supplication to the Almighty, goes God, and basically saying, if you had just sought God before all these troubles happened, none of these things would have happened. In other words, he's continuing his idea. You've done something wrong. You should have gone to God and confessed your sins. Now, we are told in chapter 1 that he was offering sacrifices not only for him and his wife, but for the kids and everybody else. He's seeking God with all of his heart. He hates evil, was the testimony of God. And... Bildad saying, uh, Job, there's something wrong with you. You, didn't, you weren't seeking God. Now Job's got to be thinking, well, was I not seeking God hard enough? How many more sacrifices did I, should I have made because now I'm being accused of not seeking God? So this is you know, wonderful comfort they're giving him. Your kids deserved it. You didn't offer enough sacrifices. You didn't offer enough prayers. All right? Uh, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awaken or arouse you and make the, your habitation of your righteousness prosperous or complete. Right? So if you were pure, if you were righteous, as you have been saying, Job, wouldn't God have stirred you back into your position and made you and restored your prosperity? This is the downside of the prosperity gospel. When things don't go the way people think they should, then something's wrong with you. And believe me, I have seen this. I've been around people that believe the prosperity gospel. They beat themselves up badly trying to figure out what they did to deserve it, and they beat each other up. You know, well, if you were just good enough, then all this stuff wouldn't be happening to you, so you just need to find out what you've done wrong and repent. You know, and this is the problem with the prosperity gospel is if, it does, if you're not being healthy, wealthy, and wise then something's wrong with you. It's hard. It's a hard way to live up. And it's the same idea that you can lose your salvation. It's a hard way to live because you're always worried about, have I done enough good to keep my salvation that I didn't earn in the first place? So it's a big problem. Well, haven't they look at someone who's 
not a Christian and is totally prosperous, you know, I mean. <laughs> it throws them for a loop. They have a hard time with that. Because they look and they go, this person's not following God, they're not obeying God, and yet they are prosperous. And they'll write it off to, well, God is just leaving them alone because they're not his child and all that, but it goes against what they teach. That person should be, you know, penniless in the, in the gutter, uh, and nothing they're doing should be prosperous, and yet they prosper. And this is the thing, we understand the other side of this, that God is sovereign, and he will do what he wants to do. But the other side of this is when somebody looks like they're doing prosperous and good, if you get to know them, usually they're empty and hollow. All right. And so, yes, they on one side, they seem to be doing well on the worldly side of things, but their life is miserable. You know, and again, you know, we wouldn't see it unless you get to know them. And I've met several people that are fairly well off that didn't know Christ, and I've met them and talked to them, you know, and got them to open up a little bit, and they are empty and shallow and you know yeah they could buy they could buy whatever they wanted but it doesn't they're not happy so there's a flip side to that that's they're not fully prosperous and this is what this word prosperous here that he's that Bildad uses he uses a word for prosperity that is completely and made whole all right so he's actually understanding that there's a prosperity beyond just physical prosperity and he's realizing that Job does not have any of the prosperity that he should be having. We've talked about this several times. True prosperity is having enough to survive and yet being happy and content with what we have. And many people that are very wealthy are not content with what they have. They, all, they want more. They're afraid it's going to lose what they have. And there's no joy and no peace even in everything they do have, and they're seeking for more. And they're seeking for that spiritual peace. Right now, Job's suffering. He doesn't have any peace. He has no, no prosperity. He has no peace. So he is missing that peace that comes along because, again, his doctrine is being shaken up. His theology is being shaken up. He's going, I don't deserve what I've got. I don't understand this. This stuff happens to bad people. I do not understand what's going on. And God is saying, well, yeah. We're going to teach you. We're going to teach you that I'm sovereign and your contentment needs to be in me, not in your stuff. And this is going to be where he gets to by the end of the book. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end should greatly increase. For I inquire, for inquire I pray you, of the former age and prepare yourself to search of their fathers. So it goes, your beginning was small. You were born with nothing. And you, got in, and you got some increase, and your latter end, you should be greatly increased. And again, his idea is the more you obey God, the greater and greater it gets. And you might have a setback, and then you turn and repent, and God will rebuild upon, upon that. All right, so he's going to, going, to be, going to be in. And then he goes, inquire of the former age and uh, search for their father. So he goes, look back over history. Look back what has gone happened in the past. Look back to Noah, look back to Adam, look back to, to Cain and Abel and Seth. You know, go back and see who, who, is, who has grown, what's, what's happening, and see that God blesses obedience. All right? Uh, so he's going to look back. And this is good history for us. I mean, it's good for us to look back and say what has happened with 
other people in the scriptures. And this is why I quite frequently say, look back at these guys who we think are heroes in the Bible, and they are heroes, but what was the downside even after their heroic actions? Or the downside before their heroic actions? And how did God use them? Were they really good people when they were called? I love the call of Gideon. Gideon, when God was called Gideon, what was he doing? He was hiding in a wine press, trying to get the wheat uh, to be blown out uh, in a wine press. And the angel said, you valiant man of God. <laughs> Can you imagine he's a coward <laughs> hiding in a wine press, trying to, trying to thresh the wheat in a wine press, and he's called valiant man of God. He was as far from being a valiant man of God at that call as could possibly be. And yet God's testimony of him was totally different than what he would have com commented on. Moses trying to do things on his own and then finally called by God. It's an amazing thing when you look at each of these great men of the Bible, women of the Bible, and see where they started at and see where they ended up at. We look at somebody like Ruth. Ruth was born a Moabitist, an enemy of God, and then turned to God and became one of his followers and then became part of the line of Christ. You know, Rahab, a harlot, turned to God and was made into the line of Christ. All these different people that have their weaknesses and yet were used by God. The advice that Bildad is saying is look to the past. The only problem is looking to the past was going to be looking to all the great people who were blessed because of their obedience to God and not looking to other areas of failures in God's grace and mercy. Most of the, most of the people I've commented are long after the, the events that are happening right now. Yeah, he's in Abraham's time, so there wasn't a whole lot, not a whole lot to look at. But... He's also closer to the time of Noah. There may have been a lot more stories from before the flood to look at than we have. So there were stories. I mean, there were stories that, were, that he would have said, look back to these stories and see how these people have been, have been touched. But he's still thinking about material blessings for obedience to God. All right, so we're going to go forward from there. And he goes, verse 9 says, uh, For we are but yesterday and know nothing, because our days on the earth are a shadow. In other words, we're young, our lives are short, we don't know anything. It's kind of interesting, the, the people that he's talking about, because we're going to find out that Job is going to live in uh, 150 or something years. He's going to get to four generations of kids after this event. But they're also looking back to the days of the patriarchs. You know, Abraham is going to live to 130-something, which is this time frame. But he's also looking back and saying, Noah. Noah lived, lived a few hundred years. Uh, uh, Adam lived almost a thousand years. And all, you know, he's looking back and goes, look back at how long their lives are. We're just, we're just youngsters compared to the, the ancients. Go back and look to their, what they taught, what they have. And I think they had a little more knowledge of what they taught and how they followed. So Basically, he says we're young. Uh -huh. However young they are, we don't know. These guys are younger than, younger than Job, we believe, in the first yeah, place. Like 
No, he wasn't looking, they weren't expecting to live that long. But their idea was, and maybe you know, many of us at our age have said it, you know, you're just a youngster. You're 35 years old, you're just a youngster, you don't know what you're talking about. That's his statement that he's making. Okay, we're still young. <laughs> he's gonna live to see four generations, so he's probably 40 or 50 years old at this point. He's got adult children, and he's going to live to see to his fourth generation, so he's gotta be young enough to live to about 150 years old, and yeah, it says at the end of it, I know he's, this is well after the flood, it's after, it's after Babylon, it's after Babylon, so there's a lot of stuff going on at this point. Confusion of the Tower of Babel, we're well after that. So the last of the long-lived people is Eber, all right? Eber is still alive at this point in time, though, because he was, Eber lived up until the time of Joseph. Now, I'm not saying they knew him because he was up in the Babylon area where all this battle was going on, but Eber is the last of the long-lived patriarchs. Everybody else's short lifespans compared to him. And he is the one who's righteous. He is the one that started the family of the Hebrews, which are the worshipers of the one true God. All right. Uh, everybody else is worshiping multiple gods and everything, so he develops all of the families of the Hebrew people. And we've said this several times that all Jews are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Jews, because the people that are Hebrews come from Eber. All right, and Eber was the one that taught about God. He real close to the the flood and Noah and everybody, and he says. He remembers, he's the one that's bringing them back to. And so they could be referring to somebody like Eber. Uh, Eber is still alive, he's up there in Babylon. Uh, he's teaching the one true God and you know, he's the one that, you know, he's kind of smart. He, he's been around long enough to, he's been around long enough to, <laughs> to know these things. Go back to. So no, they weren't referring to the fact that we're gonna live hundreds and hundreds of years. But basically, he is making the statement, we're just young. What, what, how old young is, we don't know. But basically he's saying, uh, you know, he might have been looking at Eber in his hundreds of years and saying, you know, <laughs> you know who, who are we to be making any decision? It's kind of a true statement. Who are we at our young age to be making any hard stances, even though he's going to make a hard stance? And so it's kind of a very bizarre <laughs> statement in the middle of all this. And then he goes... Shall they, shall not they teach you and tell you in utter words out of their heart? Who? The, fa the ancient fathers, the, the, the long-lived people. Shall they not teach you and answer you and utter things out of the, their heart, their innermost being? He's going, talk to the elders. Think back to what you know. Go back, to, for us, go back to the scriptures. Go back to what what is out there, all right? So the very interesting is that he's having the right idea, but not applied correctly, all right? He's going, well, Job, you know, you know, God does not pervert judgment, so you must deserve what this is. Your kids must have deserved what they got, otherwise they wouldn't have died. Uh, he goes, you know, if you had just sought God before all of this happened, none of this would have happened. You know, what great comfort this is. 
you know, it's all your fault. It was all their fault. You know, did, you know just quit blaming God and, and just move on. And we need to be careful because we can fall into this same process. God, I don't understand. You know, I know better than you do, so quit, quit being so mean to me and quit being mean to this person or, you know, what, what is going on instead of just settling down and saying, God, you, you've got this under control. And this is why it's important to understand the sovereignty of God. Now, again, we have great advantage. We know the reason that Job's going through this, but we also have the entirety of Scripture that talks about God being sovereign and, and he can do what he wants and, and he blesses who he wants to bless and curses who he doesn't, you know, wants to curse and that he's got a reason behind it and, and all of these things. So we have the entirety of Scripture to back us up. Now, they had all the truth, I'm sure, but they didn't have it in written form to be able to sit down and go back to and memorize and everything. They had to take it from oral traditions. And sometimes it's very hard to remember oral traditions when you're going through trials. But this is what we've said so many times is what we learn, we need to remember when, it's being when we're in that testing. Or as we said it the last week, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. All right, so what God teaches us ahead of time cannot be forgotten when we're in the middle of a trial. And yet, how many times do we forget what we learned in the light in the middle of the darkness? Because that's the whole purpose of the dark trial. Are you going to remember what you learned? And are you going to hold on to it? Do you really believe what you learned? And God puts us in darkness. He steps away from us and says, okay, are you going to hold on to what I taught you? They had the teaching somewhere along the line, but it's been perverted and, and moved along. Job has bits and pieces of it. We saw him when he corrected his wife and said, shall we not accept evil from God? You know, we accepted evil, uh, blessings from God. Shall we not accept this evil from God? He understood God was sovereign, right? We saw a lot of truth in Job before his friends showed up. We see the confusion of him because he says because he's so stuck on this prosperity side that he's also not understanding. He understands God is sovereign, God can do what he wants, but he's stuck on the prosperity that something's wrong. You know, his doctrines don't match up. And this is the problem that we will always have in our life. Because we do not have a full understanding of all of Scripture. I've only been studying it for a short 52 years, and I still don't have a full understanding of all of the doctrines of God and how they all, put, all come together. And God is continually putting me in test to say, all right, do you believe what you do believe? Now let's add to it. Now let's show you how this one's not right. This happens all the time in people's lives. God putting them into places that say, do you fully understand who I am? And the answer is no. It really is. The answer is always no, because none of us will ever fully understand God. Because he says in, in Isaiah, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. That we cannot understand God, even when we know the scriptures very well, we still cannot know the completeness of God. <laughs> well, the more you know about him, the easier it is to go through the trials and tribulations. So God is going to continue to help draw us closer to knowing and understanding him. 
but we will never understand him because he's, go he's always going to. And I have said this, even when we get to heaven, God is still going to be greater and higher than we are. You know, because otherwise we'd become God. And nowhere in the scripture does it say that we become God. We're his children. We will spend eternity with him. He will bless us. But we do not become all-knowing and all under, you know, and all and everything that God is, omnipresent and all-knowing and all these other things that he is all. We do not become that. We will give given a lot of knowledge, but I really do believe that God will continually teach us for the rest of eternity because he's always going to be greater. And he's going to say, hey, let's, let's teach you a little bit more. Let's teach you a little bit more. Let's teach you a little bit more while we're reigning and, and ruling whatever it is that we're reigning and ruling over. And part of it will be the angels and who knows what else. But, you know, this whole thing is Job does not understand. So we, he's going, they shall teach you. Who shall teach you? The ancients. If you just listen to the ancients. What's Bildad assuming? Hey, I've been listening to them and I know very much what they'd tell you, Job. Now, he does not fully understand what they would teach because most many of them would have taught correctly. Now he goes on to another, he starts going into some examples. Can the rush grow without the mire? Can the flag grow without water? While it is yet in its greenness and, is, and not cut down, it withers before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God and the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off and those and whose trust shall be a spider web he shall lean upon his house and it shall not stand he shall hold it fast but it shall not endure he is green before the sun and his branch shoots up forth in his garden his roots are wrapped around the heap and and see the place of stones if he is just if he destroyed him from his place then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen you. All right. So here is Bildad's big argument. All right. He goes, and there's kind of some truth in this. Can a rush grow without mire and can the flag grow without water? All right. If you've ever been around marshy areas or wet areas, you see the bulrushes and the, and the flag, and the, and the flag uh, uh, growth the, the the things that grow up around the water and it's very interesting you know you get out into a marshy area and there's those things that grow in there and if it wasn't for that marshy ground that wet constant wet ground they bulrushes would not grow i've never seen a grove of bulrushes in the middle of a desert never seen them in the middle of a field wherever there is a pond or something you can see bulrushes this is his argument you know you've got to have these things to have this other thing kind of a good argument all right and it kind of goes against his prosperity doctrine it's going you've got to have the bad things sometimes to be able to appreciate the good this is against the prosperity gospel but this is what he's saying on on this he says and while it is yet green and is not cut down and yet it withers before any other herb again your bulrushes and everything will, will die very quickly if you take the water away from them. They will, they will wither away very quickly. So this is a very strong statement that he's making. You know, these bad things can be there for a good reason. He's really quoting a Romans 8.28 principle. All right, you've got the water, you've got the, the marsh, and here you've got the bulrushes. <laughs> 
Now, he doesn't understand that this is exactly what Job is going through. Job's going through a hard time so God can reward him. He's using it for a whole other purpose uh, in, in his argument. And while it is yet green, it is not cut down. Uh, so are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrites' hoth shall perish. This is where he's starting to go the wrong direction. Basically, he's saying, Job, your hope is going to perish because you're being a hypocrite. We know that you had to have done something wrong because you are being judged. Other, otherwise, you're calling God a liar and God does not pervert judgment and, and you know, going back to his first statement. So therefore, you're being a hypocrite and the hope of a hypocrite perishes. This is kind of strong language for him. He's coming back and saying, you know, though, so are the paths of those that forget God or cease to, to uh, remember God. Job, you have ceased to remember God, so therefore something, you're, you've got a, hope, a false hope. This is kind of a sad statement. Again, this is that picture of what kind of counselor is he being? All right, Job, you are a hypocrite. You keep saying that you don't deserve this. God does not pervert judgment. Therefore, you are a hypocrite and your hope is false. Very strong language as he's going through this. Uh, and he goes, your hope perishes, whose help shall be cut off, whose trust shall be a spider web. Now, if you're not a spider, a spider, a spider web is not something you want to trust in. For us as human beings, we touch a spider web and it breaks. Now, our spiders can crawl up and down them and everything, but it's not very strong for us. And if that wasn't enough, he shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. In other words, Job, your whole building of what you're trying to argue on is, not, is a house of cards. It's turned into something that would make sense to us. It's a house of cards. You're going to touch it, and it's just going to collapse. And, you know, what comfort he's given him. Job, everything you're saying is this big house of cards. There is no hope for you to, to stand on. And when you touch your, touch your structure, it's going to collapse. Now, sometimes that's how we do feel about life. When we're in the middle of a trial that God is trying to teach us something in it, it really is true that our foundation has been a house of cards and God is trying to tear down that house of cards and give us a true foundation. So you can start seeing how much of what he's saying is semi-true. It's not comforting. And he doesn't understand that he doesn't understand what the house of cards is that he's talking about. He's thinking the house of cards is, Job, you deserve what you're getting and quit trying to blame, say you don't. He doesn't understand that God is trying to tear down that whole doctrine in Job's life. So he's almost in a true true statement but isn't this the worst thing about a lie is when it is so close to the truth that it sounds true and his his whole structure has truth if job deserved it then yes all of this is true statements job doesn't just deserve it and yet there is a statement here that his job's whole doctrine has been a house of cards and god is trying to destroy that house of cards and say, I want you to have a new way of thinking. I want you to take a deeper understanding of who I am. And God does that with us all the time. God, I think I know you. I think I know exactly what you want to do. And says, okay, God says, all right, let's, let's see how well you know me. 
Let's see how much you know the depth of my mercy, the depth of my grace, the depth of my love, the depth of my knowledge, whatever it might be. And I've said this many times, you know, my view of God has grown so much. How much is omnipresence? You know, when I first started thinking of omnipresence of God, I thought about he is everywhere. Well, that's fine. He is everywhere. And that is a true statement. But then I took it to the next dimension. He is every time. He is at every time because he is outside of time. And you know what? If they could prove to me that there's a fifth, or fourth, a fifth, sixth, or seventh dimension, God encompasses those. All right? And I'm really ready to grab hold of that. You know, and that, this uh, physics is starting to say, I don't remember what the last number they were. I think the last number I saw was 9 or 10 or 11 or something. And if there's that many dimensions, God is that big. He encompasses those. Physics is telling us that we have universes pushing against universes. Doesn't bother me if, if there are universes out there that are touching our universe. God is encompassing those universes. It doesn't matter to me how big is God. However big we can make things out to be in our mind, he is bigger than that. You know, how loving is he? You know, we don't even begin to understand how loving God is. You know, because he keeps adding to the level of our understanding of his loving. You know, and so here Job is trying to be stretched. Bildad is going to, should be getting stretched. He's not. Neither is Zilpah or the, or the other guys. But, um, and he says, you lean upon your house and it falls down. He is green before the sun and his branch shoots forth in his garden. So he's growing. He says, you know, everything grows. His roots are wrapped around the heap and seeth the place of stone. So his roots are wrapped around the, this is a heap or a pile of stone in, in, in the idea. So his roots are wrapping around stone. And he's going, and as Jesus told us, you know, when the seed was planted, some fell on the stony ground and the sun dried it up and killed it. So basically saying your hope is worthless. Your hope is wrapped around that heap of stones and will be burnt out in no time. Your branch shoots forth, but it's still not going to hold up. It prophesies in the place of the, or the household of the stones. He goes, it's, it's totally worthless because it's out there in nothing. It's not planted in good soil. And this is his attack on Job, but it's also the attack on the whole prosperity gospel. It is a hopeless uh, gospel of peace you know, because people do suffer and things do happen to bad people. And this is what God is going to say all through scriptures. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. The storms happen. Jesus told the, the, to the people, he goes, do you think the people that the Tower of Siloam fell, you know, the Tower outside Siloam fell on, were that they were worse than all the rest of the Jews in that area? No, some of them were good people. Bad things happen to good people. A tornado goes through a town, evil and good people suffer. It, the tornado doesn't go up and down over everybody's houses and, and only take away the bad people's houses. Many times, good people suffer. They're not understanding that. They're, that's not part of their doctrine. And if he destroy him from his place, then it, sh 
Then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen you. So it says, if you are engulfed or swallowed up in your place, then it says that God says, I have not seen him. It's kind of a strange statement that he says, God does not keep you. And the last thing, behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth shall others grow. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. Till he fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. They that hate you shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. So here is where he starts getting very incorrect in his statements. So he says, Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth shall grow others. Okay, this is a true statement. Death and new life comes. All right? And we know this happens. Things die. They re, the nitrogen and all the, all the minerals and herbs go back into the ground, and new life comes out of that, that death, that decay. So true statement. It's part of shows us that he understands a little bit about uh, science that we just learned in the last hundred so years, the nitrogen cycle, the replacement cycle of, of, of life. He goes, behold, God will not cast away a perfect man. Neither will he help the evildoers. Again, some true statements, but brings up the idea. What happens to that unrighteous person who seems to have everything go their way? David said it in Psalms. Why do the heathen rage, rage and, the, uh, you know, and, and these guys seem to go forward? Why do these people get blessed? And the question that all of us have sometimes, God, why is that person being blessed that's so blasphemous against you and everything they touch seems to go good? They've got, a, they've got the mansion on the mountainside. They've got a five-car garage, and it's got more cars in it than, than can fit in it. They've got the servants. They've got everything, and God, they don't honor you at all. And yet, here's this person honoring you that can barely make their ends meet, and they're struggling. His statement is semi-correct. God does not abandon his people. He will meet the needs of those who follow him. Now, sometimes that need is just meeting the need. Now, in America, he meets more than our needs in most cases because we have such high standards you know, of what need is. In the rest of the world, he meets their need. He gives them a shelter. He gives them enough food to go by. And it says, and neither will he help the evildoers. Now, I don't think that he is actively helping these people that seem to have everything going wrong, but he's also not pitched against them either. All right? So what they do is good. I have met people that are just naturally good negotiators, naturally good at, at manipulating people and getting their way. All right? Uh, if you ever want to get into a deal, do not go into a deal with my brother. You will, he will get the best of the deal. He always has, probably always will. All right? And there are many multimillionaires that that's the way they are. They are good at getting every last bit of profit out of a deal, leaving nothing for the other person. All right? I don't think that's good, good business myself. I'm, I'm the Zig Ziglar idea that everybody has to win. And to make a good deal, everybody has to win. And I, I'm following his advice on that. I do not believe in negotiation. I do not believe in compromise. 
I want everybody to come away as a winner. Compromise people have a win and a loss and they never feel like they've come away successful. And I've always believed that there should be something in there that says everybody wins and I've, and I've seen it over and over again. If you look for it, you'll find it. You'll find the way that everybody comes out a winner. And so here's what he's saying. God, <laughs> there are people that are just going to win because that is their natural abilities. But that doesn't mean God's blessing them. And there are people that are actually gods who are not trusting in him and asking for his advice on many things. They make a lot of bad decisions and have to suffer for their decisions and because they weren't following God's principles. And many of my problems in my life are because I didn't follow God's principles, especially when I knew them and I still violated his principles. So we find all of this going on and it says, God will not cast away a perfect man. His conclusion is, Job, if you're perfect, you're saying God cast you away. God has not cast away Job. He is watching over Job. He knows, he knows exactly what's going on in Job's life. He has put the boundaries on what Satan can do in Job's life. The boundaries are a lot wider than Job would like to, to have them being. But God has not cast him away. So there's a truth in this statement. It's not fully understood by Bildad about what this statement is but he has made a true statement god will not cast away the the righteous or the or the godly man all right but he doesn't understand the parameters that god will give you know, and i've said this many times many times i've asked god you know god could you give me just a give satan just a little less uh leash right now i mean that's He's making my life a little bit more miserable than I like. I know you're trying to teach me something. Help me learn what it is you're trying to teach me, but could we tighten that leash back a little bit? You know, and not that God will ever do that. Uh, I've learned to just say, God, help me learn what it is you want me to learn. <laughs> but I know in my earlier days, I'm going, God, tighten that leash. Get it, pull him back. I know he can't quite reach me, but his, his paw is coming awfully close. <laughs> That, that tooth that's snapping at me is awfully close. I know he can't quite reach, but, you know, it's a little, I can smell the breath. <laughs> that, that, that it's too close. <laughs> and so this is what Bildad is saying, uh, you know, in, in this. He goes, till he fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. So again, he's back to this prosperity idea. But you know, it is really true, though. When we learn to trust God... And we are content, we've learned con to be content with where we're at. He does fill our mouth with, with laughter and our lips with rejoicing. When we know that he is in charge and nothing is happening. So this is why we're saying his, he's applying this all wrong. But his argument is very close to the true statement. All right. Uh, yes, I have been... Times when everything seems to be going bad, and it's like, okay, God, I don't know what you're trying to teach me, but I am going to be content, and I'm going to rejoice in what's going on. I have no idea what you're trying to teach me, but God, I am going to stay firm, and I'm going to just praise you and, and be following you. And Job, again, if, we re, if you go back to the very beginning, before his friends showed up, Job was starting to say the right things. All right, God, don't understand this, but I want to trust you. And then his friends showed up, and it really became hard at that point. 
and then his last statement is, they that hate you shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. Now, if you go to the end of this book, if you're reading ahead, what is happening at the very end when God speaks to Job? He says, Job, you pray for these, these men because I am angry that they misrepresented me, and I'm going to crush them. This is exactly what he said. Bildad said it right there. He goes, those that hate you shall be clothed with shame. Now, he's thinking of God, but he's, they're judging God's child. And God says, you're going you're gonna to be judged in your return. We need to be very careful that we never touch something that God is blessing. Right? David said he would not touch God's anointed and that was when Saul had already been rejected and he had been picked up you know, and chosen as king. And, God, and David says, I'm not going to touch the one that God blessed. God will have to take him out before I, before I will try to take his place. Bildad doesn't understand what's been, what he's saying there, but he is touching God's anointed. Job does not deserve what he's having. God is trying to teach him and he is accusing him of doing something wrong. And God will avenge. This is what I said this morning. We need to learn to just trust God and let him be our defender. And then God will be our defender. And at the end of this book, God tells Job, you, pr you pray for these guys because I'm now ready to move against them. They touched you. They attacked you incorrectly. They spoke for me incorrectly. And I'm, I'm now ready to judge them. And Job interceded with God for them. Sometimes our job will be to intercede for those that have abused us. To keep God from giving to them what they deserve. Because God is going to move. And now God will judge anyway. You know, we can't totally stop him. But you know, our job is to just pray for those who are mistreating us. And our prayer shouldn't be, God, go get them. My prayer for them is, God, would you send somebody to give the gospel to them? If it's me, great. If not, will somebody give them the gospel and will they respond? My hope is that everybody goes to heaven. Even those that are trying to make my life miserable, I want them to go to heaven. Because hell is such an awful place, I don't want to see anybody go there. And God says, my desire that all will come to me. That's his desire because of his love. He does not want to see people in hell. Now, if they want hell, he'll give them hell. He'll give them what they want. But his goal is more simple. I want all to come to me and accept that sacrifice. Bildad does not understand that statement. Job, you have been so bad, you deserve what you're getting. And if you don't recognize it, there's a problem. Quit being a hypocrite. And we need to be very careful. Do we really honor people where they're at? Or are we going to sit there and criticize them for where they're at? And you know, the hard thing about that is, I have learned the hard way that usually when I think I know what God wants and how he, how he will act, I find out that I'm wrong. I don't know God as well as I think I do sometimes. Uh, and I've learned the hard way to be a little more gentle with people. Uh, and be very careful about how I deal with people because it is so easy to just say, well, why don't you just get right with God and everything will be okay? Because we still have this mentality in our mind. 
that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And the more good I do, the more I'll be blessed. And we still have this mentality, even if we're not prosperity gospel people. Because the very first thing we're going to do is, why did these bad things happen to this person? They must not be very good. We all tend to think that way. Maybe we don't say it, <laughs> but we all tend to think that way. What did this person do to deserve what's, what's going on in their life? Instead of loving them where they're at, encouraging them to keep seeking after God, you know, and we need to be very careful about that. And this is where Bildad is basically saying, Job, you're a, you're a hypocrite without knowing what's going on. So we're going to end there. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we go about your, your business. Lord, help us learn not to judge people for where they're at or what we think we see in their life. Help us always to love and to build up and to encourage people. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.